electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner. The comeback for stocks, our top story this hour, as we attempt to rally back from the quickest correction on record. The Nasdaq going from a record high to down 10% in just three days. To help us navigate the market's turbulent waters today, we are joined by a special guest. Brad Gerstner is the founder and CEO of Altimeter Capital. Brad is also launching a major new initiative today called the Board Challenge, which aims to increase African-American representation on corporate boards. We will certainly get to that, and uh, we'll do it in a big way in just a moment. But, Brad, we do want to begin with the markets. Welcome. It's good to see you again. Hey, Scott. Great to see you. Thanks for having me. So I'm wondering, as a tech investor, what you make of what we've witnessed with the Nasdaq and that sector over the last few days. Is this a simple correction or is it something more? Well, you probably saw last night, Scott, I tweeted, pullback, what pullback? Um, Let's just ground this in some facts. Um, Even before today, pre-COVID, the multiple on our software growth index was about 10 times sales. It peaked about a week ago at 15 times sales. Today, we're at 13 times sales. So we're still 30% higher valuations on a multiple basis in software than we were before the pandemic. The same is true for for growth internet. Pre-COVID, we're about 23 times next year's EBITDA. Um, We peaked at about 35 times next next year's EBITDA. And today, we're still at 32 times next year's EBITDA. So hardly a correction in my book. Well, I mean, do you think it gets worse? And does it need to get worse? Do you you think that some of these stocks got simply out of control in the way they went up parabolically? Well, uh, you know, the the characterization doesn't need to get worse. I mean, it's pretty good. Um, These are peak multiples for Internet and software stocks in the middle of a global pandemic. And remember, for most software companies, the pandemic has not accelerated their revenues. Right. There are certain companies, Shopify, Zoom, certain e-commerce companies where we've seen tremendous acceleration. And so an expansion of the multiple is justified. But we've seen an expansion of multiple for the entire sector, many of whom did not benefit from COVID. Do you, do you think, I mean, look, if, if people scrutinize these, these stocks and the run-ups, they say it was built uh, almost solely on, on multiple expansion, right? That suggests to you uh, that it wasn't fundamentally driven and that some of the air, you know, there, there's still a fair amount of air that needs to come out of the balloon, if you will, in certain pockets of technology. Well, Scott, I would take, our, I would take the other side of, of that bear case as well. Clearly, there's been digital acceleration in the behavior of people that I think will have some semi-permanence to it. The rate at which enterprises are going to move into the cloud has accelerated. And so it's logical that analysts are looking at their forecasts and saying we're probably too low in the out years in terms of growth rates. The same is true for e-commerce. But markets move quickly. It probably got ahead of itself a bit. We're at peak multiples. And so it, it would be logical 
in a world where we're starting to talk about vaccines, that we see some money moving out of these high growth sectors back into more traditional uh, areas of the economy. How, how, how are you feeling about, say, your Facebook holding? It's your, it's your number one holding still, I believe. I'm also told you added to Microsoft in the last month or so. How are you feeling about those large mega cap technology stocks that you own today? Yeah, Scott, as you know, we've, we've owned Facebook for years, uh, Ubers for, for years, Snowflake for years. We're long-term investors. Um, and so, you, you know, certainly some of those multiples are more demanding today. Uh, than they were 120 days ago. I would be lying if I didn't say the rate at which uh, prices and information has changed has been as fast as I've seen in my career. But with that said, our price targets, when we look two or three years out for Facebook, for Uber, for you know companies like Snowflake, are significantly higher uh, than where they're trading today. And so we're not making many adjustments to the portfolio. Yeah, it's been a whip. Uh, you know, that's for that's for certain. I mentioned at the top of the program the Nasdaq going through the fastest correction ever, right? Record high to down 10 percent in, in simply three days. And you're looking at the picture now. Dow's up. Uh, we're, you know, we've, we've come back a, a nice amount today. Dow's up 500. That's about 2 percent. Nasdaq is having a nice day, about 300 points, too. I mentioned that. Hey, Scott, yeah, Scott, yeah. remember, Tesla was down 21 percent yesterday, but still up 300 percent on the year in the middle of a global pandemic. Yeah. So well, this is part of healthy consolidation in a market that just re- moved really far, really fast. You, you could look at that certainly as, a, as in a couple of ways, too, in, in the, the context that you just put it in. But also um, this my word, no one else's, maybe the absurdity in which some of these stocks moved up, in, you know, in the, the magnitude and the speed, the swiftness that, that they did. And that perhaps that suggests that there's a pretty good amount of downside that could happen to some of the names. Maybe it's Tesla. Maybe maybe it's others. So I could look at that a couple of different ways, Brad. Well, I, I think you're exactly right. And I think Stan Druckenmiller, who I admire, uh, referred to it as a mania this morning on on Squawk. Um, you know, you can't be invested in growth software or growth Internet and have a six month point of view. We could certainly have further consolidation. Multiples could certainly contract to their mean, which would mean another 20 to 30 percent downside from where we are today. But if you take a two or a three year view, which I think most of your viewers should be doing, um, then I think that you can own these and you just need to size them appropriately uh, in your portfolio. Yeah. And, and, and speaking of views, you are taking a, a big picture view, if you will, um, not a six month view. Um, maybe you could say a 12 month view and, and out of the makeup of our board structure in, in this country, the way our corporate boards look. Uh, and that speaks to the board challenge, which you've launched today with some co-founders. But speak to me about that idea, where it came from, why now, and what the response has been. Yes. You know, Scott, I think you put it well. It's very simply a movement among companies, business leaders, uh, and investors to accelerate the rate at which we diversify our corporate boardrooms. Um, It started like many other uh, uh, movements start. It was a conversation uh, that came out of uh, a question my 12-year-old son Lincoln asked me after viewing the tragic death of George Floyd, and he just said, Dad, what are you going to do about this? And I realized that as an investor and a board member, there was something we could do. It's not a big part of the puzzle. It's a small part of the puzzle. But we certainly could accelerate the rate at which we were changing our boardrooms. And so I reached out to Guy uh, Primus, to Sikinder, who've been working on these issues for for a long time. Um, And soon we're a group of 30 
calling up CEOs and board members, asking them to take the pledge, which is simply a commitment that they're going to accelerate the rate of change in the boardroom, not just for black directors, but starting with black directors. But they need to continue to work and rep recognize that a more diverse boardroom, a more diverse company it will lead to better results. Yeah. You're, those co-founders you mentioned, uh, we should bring them in. They are with us today. Uh, Sikinder Singh Cassidy is the founder of Board List, which searches for female talent to serve on private company boards. Guy Primus, of course, the founder of Valance. It's an online community for black professionals. It's great to have um, everybody with us today. Um, and Sikinder, really, the, the numbers don't lie, right? More than a third of S&P 500 companies have zero black board members. More than 53% of investors, according to EY, say board diversity should be a top priority. The question, Sikinder, is with this initiative and others, are things going to change? Uh, well, I think we, we certainly hope so. Two, two or three things I'd observe. First of all, historically, this has been thought of as a pipeline challenge. And we, of course, know at the board list, which is a two-sided marketplace that introduces CEOs to underrepresented talent and diverse talent, uh, that the pipeline myth is just that. It's a myth. What we really suffer from is fairly homogeneous networks long board tenures and not enough board turnover. Uh, what we look at today is, of course, an increasing uh, view and recognition that gender diversity and ethnic diversity and all types of diversity really increase almost every financial metric that a company cares about. So I do think we're seeing a shift in uh, understanding that this is not a pipeline problem, but really a problem of really board focus on changing its own representation. Yeah, Guy, you know, we, we know boards are, don't, don't represent the, the employees of the company they, they don't represent the customers of, of any given company, and they certainly don't represent society at large. The issue is how quickly you can begin to change things. This is a good initiative to sort of kick things off. And the conversation has certainly fired up since the George Floyd incident and others um, that we all know about. Um, it's going to take a t some time to change, though, right? Yeah, absolutely. But the change starts with one small step. And again, when Brad reached out to me, uh, you know, I had just become CEO of Valence and we're really dedicated to being the catalyst for the change that you talk about for the professional and economic success of, of black talent at, at all levels. And um, you know, it was incredible because Brad called me again. We're, we're 80 days into this you know, kind of first conversation and just one call at a time. We've gotten you know, over 40 companies to sign up to either say, hey, I'm going to add a black board member in the next 12 months or I have a black board member or, or board members, and I'm committed to maintaining that and then sharing my experience and, and accelerating that change again. So being the catalyst starts with one small step. But if you ask if things are going to change, things already have changed. People have opened their eyes. They've opened their minds to the fact that this is necessary. And not only is it necessary for societal benefit, but it's actually necessary for shareholder value. And so when I was at Starbucks, I saw this happen. I saw it with my own eyes, walking into the boardroom with Melody Hobson and Olden Lee from Pepsi and seeing what happened as a result of their involvement in Howard Schultz's dedication to this issue. So, Kinder, there are companies and many of them that, that have at least one black director. I'm looking at the list because they're charter pledge partners of yours with the, the, the boardroom challenge. Uh, WW, the former Weight Watchers, United Airlines will speak with Oscar Munoz in just a bit. Merck and the NASDAQ, the New York Stock Exchange, Nordstrom and Okta and you know, Verizon, companies that are speaking out today on behalf of, of this initiative. But are you finding, Sikinder, that there are companies that, that want to do the right thing, but they want to do it on their own terms and timeline? 
Look, I think that what is true in every conversation we have is this is a very current conversation in every boardroom in America, private and public. Uh, of course, that boards need to look at their overall composition, the turnover and rate of turnover. We believe that an initiative like the Board Challenge will accelerate that conversation, you know, and force boards to look at when and how they are going to change their representation specifically, not just generally. So I do believe that companies are headed there, and this is a very current conversation with every company that we talk to, whether they took the challenge or not. Sekinder, I appreciate you being with us today. Guy Primus, I certainly appreciate your presence here with us in this important conversation. Brad, you're going to stick around with us. We have some other important guests coming up in just a few minutes. We do have much more ahead on the half, including Merck's Ken Fraser, Zillow's Rich Barton, United Airlines, Oscar Munoz. We're back in just two minutes. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one. Visit ODFL.com to learn more. Nice comeback for stocks today as we welcome you back to the Halftime Report. Ken Fraser is the chairman and CEO of Merck. He joins us today along with Les Brune, who is CEO of the SAR Group. He's also the lead director on Merck's board, serves on the boards of Corning and Broadridge. Brad Gerstner, of course, still with us. Gentlemen, it's great to have you with us. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. Ken, I'd like to begin with you, if I could. You're a pledge partner here in this initiative, and I know this issue um, is one you care about deeply, both personally and professionally. It is. And at Merck, we've tried to do a couple of things uh, to make sure that we are actually having the right kinds of people on our board. The first one is to expand the pool of qualified candidates. And the second one, and this is important, is to ensure that there are no implicit or systemic barriers uh, to getting the best talent. And by doing that, we've been able to have a board that uh, is diverse in the sense that there are three African-American board of directors members and our independent directors are 50% female. Uh, we've been able to find the kinds of people who are leaders in business, in science, and medicine. You know, I saw an interview, or I read an interview, uh, Mr. Fraser, that you did with Harvard recently, and I was struck by your answer, and I wanted to discuss it with you. You were asked whether you thought this time would be different, if things would, would truly change, and you said, quote, I'm not sure. I hope it's different. Um, so there's a balance between hope and, and optimism, isn't there? Yes, there is. And, you know, I have to say I'm more of an optimist. Uh, I can't say for sure that things are going to change. But I have to say this time feels different in that the conversation is happening in every boardroom. And it's happening around kitchen tables all in America, around a really difficult issue around the systemic effects of racism. You know, it's very easy when you see something like George Floyd to deal with the overt, brutal uh, racism that was reflected there. But, you know, we do have these systemic issues. And, you know, the fact of the matter is there is, with respect to health outcomes, with respect to job outcomes, income outcomes, there are huge disparities. And I think it's not logical to say that none of those disparities and outcomes linked back to disparities and opportunity. Les, you've served on a number of corporate boards. Um, your voice is a critical one to have in this conversation. Are you optimistic that things will truly change? Yeah, I am optimistic. I mean, I think um, there are uh, 
as Ken has mentioned, this is a topic of conversation across the board. And I think not only is it being driven by board members, CEOs, other senior executives, but as well institutional investors in these enterprises who are also asking those kinds of questions and wanting to know why more hasn't or isn't being done. Uh, and as that happens, increasingly people will begin to focus on what it is that is doable in order to expand the participation of black people on these boards. We had a special last night, gentlemen, and I, I want you to listen to what the former Xerox CEO, Ursula Burns, told us about how we should be identifying um, talent and where and how we can expand the, the talent pool, if you will. Let's listen to Ursula Burns and then we'll have the reaction um, from everybody. What has to happen is that we have to change the criteria. The criteria has been structured in such a way that you will not find a broad set of diverse candidates. For example, most board searches ask for sitting or past CEOs. And if you do that as a criteria, you can probably count on two hands the number of candidates that you'll get that are, that are diverse. Ken, you obviously have a unique perspective in the way you're going to answer this question, but what do you think about what Ursula Burns had to say last night? I agree completely with her about the criteria. Uh, I was fortunate to go on the Exxon board under Rex Tillerson's leadership uh, way before I became the CEO of Merck, and uh, I benefited from that opportunity. I hope I've been able to make a contribution there. I think so. I agree with the criteria issue, but I think there's another subtle issue here, which is the issue around who has the right networks to, to move up into senior management or into boardrooms? Uh, you know, LinkedIn did a study recently, and in that study they found that 80 to 85 percent of these positions are being filled through people's social networks. And so as long as we don't have African Americans and Latinos uh, represented at the highest echelons of corporate America, both in management and also in the boardroom, it's unlikely that African Americans uh, and Latinos who are coming through the system will be able to take advantage of those social networks. And I've been in boardrooms, and I know that we want to find a pool of qualified people, but often we ask the kinds of questions like, uh, does anybody know this candidate? And do you think this candidate would be a good fit? So those kinds of relationship issues are critical. They become the networking issues that either include people or unintentionally exclude people. Less. Go ahead, please. No, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, you, so please. To, just to add to what Ken is saying, I mean, it, it's pretty clear that uh, networking is important and curating a group of candidates and, and, and available executives to join boards is important. And I think we recognize that. And as a group of African-American directors, lead directors, non-gov chairs, and so on, there are several groups coming together to effectively create and curate that pool of folks that we know within our networks that would make terrific board candidates. I mean, I recall quite honestly that well, every board member at one point was not a board member. And so not everyone starts off with the qualification of either being a CEO or having had public board service. I think we have to be a little bit more, a little bit more thorough and, and clear in terms of what it is that we're looking for in directors and recognizing to Ken's point that there are those who meet those qualifications exceptionally well that may not be apparent within the networks of the current composition of boards.
Brad, hey, the, Scott. Yeah. Uh, I just want to be perfectly clear. This question about criteria. This is not about dumbing down the criteria for the boardroom. This is about asking relevant questions. And I will tell you, I am absolutely blown away by the immense talent, right, in the Latino community, in the black community, prepared to take board seats, but simply have not been given the shot. And so Valence, the board list, and all of our partners here, including Merck, are raising their hands and saying, we will help you find a skill match, performance match director uh, to serve your company. And so I don't think it's a problem of talent. I think it's a problem of inertia and imagination. But the, the beauty, Brad, of the board challenge is that in, in some ways you are going to this initiative in and of itself is going to develop its own network if it goes uh, according to plan, if you will, right? Yes, the network, uh, it, it, we already, we, we offer as a default to every company that takes the pledge a free slate of candidates that the board list and valence will be putting together. But one of the beautiful things about Ken and Les leading on this is they're raising their hand and saying, we also know something about how to do this successfully, and we will share our best practices with those companies that are looking to make the change. And so it's no longer check the box and then put your head down and hope that nobody notices. This is about raising our voices, joining arms, and making sure that we not only add black directors and Latino directors to boards, but we add the best members to boards that push companies forward. Ken, I, I hope you'll oblige me uh, a question or two about Merck's effort to get a COVID vaccine, um, because it's certainly topical given the fact that you were one of the CEOs who signed the safety pledge the other day. And then there's the AstraZeneca news that we're all trying to process over the last 24 hours or so. Can you um, sort of give me an update on where Merck stands in its race to develop a vaccine in terms of that phase one trial? Well, let's say that we're assiduously advancing two candidates. We haven't talked a lot about them publicly. We tend not to talk about the work that we're doing until we have clinically meaningful data. That's always been our approach to things. But going back to the pledge, I think what these nine companies are saying is that they want the people in the United States and around the world to know that the first thing we're going to be focused on is patient safety and that we're going to follow rigorous scientific and regulatory standards before we bring a vaccine to market. Do, do, do you worry at all about the, the political pressures um, infiltrating, if you will, uh, into the approval process of, 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 of any vaccine uh, candidate that's out there? Well, I know there are a lot of public voices talking about when vaccines will be ready, but the fact of the matter is you can't rush science. And we have to be very careful and deliberate. And the point of the pledge is that we're pledging as the sponsors, as the developers, that we're actually going to be that careful, we're going to be that deliberate coming forward with these medicines. Because we know we're going into healthy people. And when you're putting these vaccines into healthy people, you have to do everything possible to ensure that these vaccines are both safe and effective. I appreciate your time very much. Ken Frazier, Les Brun, Brad, you're, of course, sticking with us. Um, glad we had this conversation on an important topic. Gentlemen, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Coming up next, the CEO of Zillow, Rich Barton, joins us. And tomorrow, CNBC's Inclusion in Action Forum examines how business leaders can take immediate concrete action addressing racial disparities in their organizations, creating sustainable solutions to allow for equity and opportunity for all. 
programmed in partnership with the Executive Leadership Council. That event will feature conversations with IBM's Ginny Rometty, Carnival's Arnold Donald, and more. You can join us tomorrow and register, please, at cnbcevents.com slash inclusion. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Sue Herrera. Here's your CNBC News update at this hour. Attorney General William Barr says the Justice Department will intervene in the E. Jean Carroll defamation case against President Trump. Carroll claims Trump raped her in the 1990s. In Britain, most gatherings of more than six people will be banned starting next week in a move to fight growing coronavirus outbreaks. Just ahead of those new restrictions, Londoners lining up to shop at the Rolling Stone store that opened today. The band's iconic tongue logo is available on a variety of clothing items and accessories, including face masks. But it'll be difficult to get in when those new restrictions get in place. Scott, I'll send it back to you. All right, Sue, we appreciate it very much. That's Sue Herrera. We are back, joined now by Rich Barton. He is the co-founder and CEO of Zillow. It's a founding pledge partner of the Board Challenge. That means they've committed to adding at least one African-American board member in the next 12 months. There's Brad Gerstner, who's still with us. Rich, welcome. It's nice to see you. Nice to see you, Scott. A- appreciate the pledge, obviously, but there obviously is accountability that comes with all of this, too. Um, why doesn't Zillow today have any African-American board members? You know, as, as many of your esteemed guests uh, were speaking about earlier in the segment and last night, Ursula Les and Ken and others, uh, I think this problem is especially bad in Silicon Valley and the tech community, that we tend to live in a little bit of an echo chamber, and that includes talent. And the same talent kind of bounces around uh, this this echo chamber and that we have to re- be deliberate about reaching outside of our networks to pull new talent into our networks. And Zillow is a tech company. But taking this pledge is all about leaning in and saying it's not just going to passively happen. Uh, if we're not part of the solution, we're part of the problem. And so I'm really pleased today to take this pledge. Sure. Um, I'm sure there's some who are, who are saying, why, why, though, should it take a pledge for companies to do, quote unquote, the right thing, which should have been done years ago anyway? 
we're human. We're only human. We respond to peer pressure. Sometimes it takes a nudge. In our case, we had an open board, a board seat open up back in April, and this was at the same time that George Floyd was happening, Breonna Taylor was happening, and this moment of social reckoning kind of it dawned on us that this, this was a real opportunity. Brad told the story of his son Lincoln. Uh, my daughter Josie did the exact same thing. She pulled up the the page with the faces on the boards of directors at Zillow, and she looked at me and raised an eyebrow and said, what are you going to do about this, Daddy? And so really leaning into this is it's progress. It feels like progress. We began a search back in April specifically targeting a black candidate, and so when Brad called up, um, he actually sold through the yes. I, I, I was I was on board. It was an easy and simple one to say yes to. Yeah, Brad, were you surprised in, in this process in reaching out to companies, how few had, you know, it's, it's one thing to have no African-American board members, but no people of color at all on their boards? No, uh, Scott, I, I've served on boards. I'm an investor. And like you heard Ken and Les say uh, eloquently, um, boards tend to pull from their own networks. And so, you know, what makes me hopeful, what makes me optimistic is the positive response we've seen. I mean, we've only been at this a few weeks and we have over 40 companies who've raised their hands and said, yes, we need to do this. We need to take the pledge. It's not about shaming companies for the progress to date. It's about uplifting us all and moving us forward and sharing our best ideas and best practice. And so part of that is some companies, frankly, just don't know where to look. And so Valence, the board list, and so many others, the Executive Leadership Council, the Coalition for Board Diversity, um, so much work being done uh, by Robert Smith and, and, and others to advance this cause. And what we want to do is just add some momentum, add some action, add some accountability. Um, and folks like Rich stepping up before I even get the question out of my mouth saying yes um, just shows where we are. And I believe that, you know, we're launching the board challenge today. We have just under 50 companies who've taken the pledge. And when I come back on in a year from now, I hope we have 500 companies that have taken the pledge to accelerate the rate of change and the rate of diversification of their boardroom. Rich, you, you, you briefly mentioned the lack of diversity in, in Silicon Valley. Um, Zillow's but one company. You can only do so much. Do you think that change is coming in the Valley? Feels like it. Feels like it. And for better or for worse, people, some people look to me. Uh, to kind of figure out how they should behave. I've been kicking around this industry for even a little longer than Brad, but we've both been around for quite some time. Uh, and sometimes it just takes uh, sometimes it just takes a little nudge. Uh, so we're really happy to do this. I, I should also add that this is something that is a groundswell coming up from our employee bases too. This is what our employees want and expect of us. It it is they want to work in companies that have leadership opportunities for uh, BIPOC and black talent, okay? And so in a part, we're responding to our employees. Another one that's obvious that we've heard in this hour already, but it's, it's worth repeating, our customers are diverse. Our customers are representative. There's not, there aren't many more industries that are more representative than where you live, than, 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 than your home or your rental. Uh, and it's just good business for us to have leadership and board directors that uh, reflect that representation, that reflect 
the customer base. But before I let you go, can you just speak to what you see, given the visibility that you have right now um, within housing, what has been red hot? We've talked about the stocks on a daily basis almost on this program and elsewhere across this network. What do you see? Well, Scott, our homes have turned into the, our schools. It's turned into our office. It's turned into our coffee shop and our gym. Uh, and the pandemic, uh, it turns out, has caused people to reevaluate where they live. And it is being reflected in these shelter stocks, uh, shelter companies like Zillow. So we're benefiting from a whole lot of desire for people to change where they live. And they're looking for new places to live. This is just lucky that in a pandemic we're sheltering uh, in this industry. I would also say as well that like in so many industries, the pandemic has accelerated uh, the kind of offline to online, the analog to digital transition of industries. And as the digital leader, Zillow has been a, a, a great beneficiary of the acceleration of that shift as well. Let me ask you lastly and, and quickly, if I could, just because you've been in the valley a while, you've seen a lot of cycles of, of stock move. I'm just wondering, what do you make of what we're witnessing within the NASDAQ right now? Some of these uh, companies that have really run up an awful lot and now are having some of the steam taken out of them. I mean, yeah, I mean, our our pattern recognition spidey sense is tingling a little bit. I saw Stan this morning uh, on, the, on, on the show uh, say that we we're, were in a mania. You know, my friend Bill Gurley, who's also friends with Brad, said the other day on a blog post, the very best way to protect against the downside is to enjoy every last bit uh, of the upside. I think we're just feeling one of those one of those moments in time again. I think the big question for investors is: Is this 1997 or is it 1999? Um, I don't. I just. I just don't know. I think that the trends that we were talking about from offline to online in so many industries are very real. I think the pandemic has really highlighted that, and so this has generated some excitement, a regenerated excitement for how technology can uh, bring the future faster. Our, our, our viewers, I'm sure, are hoping it's 97 and not 99. That, that's for Me sure. Yeah. Rich, I appreciate it so much. Thanks for being here. We'll talk to you soon. Great seeing you. All right. That's Thanks, Zillow's man. Rich Barton. Brad sticking around, too. Up next, United Airlines Executive Chairman Oscar Munoz is with us. We get his take on expanding the talent pool, the health of the airlines. United is making some news today as well. We'll discuss that with Mr. Munoz next. Nice comeback underway and holding on Wall Street today. Welcome back to the Halftime Report. Oscar Munoz is executive chairman and the former CEO of United Airlines. That company is a charter pledge partner, has already has African-American representation on its board. Oscar joining us now. Oscar, good to see you. Thanks for being here. Good to see you. You are pledging to do more as part of this initiative. Tell me how you think United's role uh, will be in this. Well, I, I hopefully it's a, a, a building of momentum for other boards to do the same thing. I mean, in making our board making the decision, you know, the way I think about it is deciding to lead people often depends on your experiences and, and the background that you have. And a board has the responsibility to not only be profitable, but I think principled, not only efficient, but ethical. And I, I think uh, diverse, perspect diverse perspectives are required to do a lot of that. And uh, and uh, to ensure the wisest, most empathetic decisions. And, and so we're very excited to join this challenge. And it's a, a decision that uh, our board had made quite some time ago. And again, excited to create some momentum. And again, uh, ask other 
boards around the country to hopefully join us. I'm wondering if you can speak to a little bit, uh, and I played the sound earlier. I'm not sure if you had a chance to hear Ursula Burns from our special last evening about sort of expanding the, the talent pool uh, in general from what is a very narrow pipeline um, right now. And I'm wondering if you can speak to that issue uh, as well. You, you have to look far beyond just those who have served in the CEO seat, because unfortunately, and the reason we're having these kinds of conversations today and almost every day, there hasn't been enough. Well, you know what? And I, I did not hear Ursula, but I completely, wholeheartedly, completely agree. I mean, it's, it's silly sometimes that we use an excuse to we don't have enough you know, qualified folks. I live it in the Latinx Hispanic community and certainly in the African-American community. Um, we have to look broader. We have to give people chances. I became a board member at an early age when I was a, a, just a young CFO in a public company and, and the company took a, cha- uh, you know, a chance on me. And I think there are an incredible amount, array of quality individuals in many places that if we just really broaden our eyes, uh, boards that are already established with a lot of Well, we'll work on Oscar's feed in just a second. Brad, I wanted to bring you into the conversation there anyway. Um, You are a United shareholder. So I'm just curious as to how going forward you'll view companies in the the kind of decision making that you'll make when deciding whether to invest in a certain enterprise. Yeah, no, Scott, it's a good and fair question. And what I would say is, you know, there is no litmus test. But we always spend time looking at the leadership of companies. We always spend time looking at who's around the board table. So when the you know, times get challenging, who's going to be there? And I would say that just as, as Rich Barton said, you know, we all have more we can do. And certainly at Altimeter, we're very focused on the composition of the board and the composition of the management team. You know, I, I, I'll tell you, uh, one of our most recent venture capital investments uh, is backing two female founders, one of whom was born in Mexico, an extraordinary software company. Um, you know, uh, they worked at Google and Splunk. And so we're, we couldn't be more excited about seeing more of this talent. But like you recognize, it's been slow in coming to Silicon Valley. Um, it won't happen overnight. But I think there is a real opportunity, a real momentum. And this is our small effort to add our voice to the mix and to cause it to accelerate. It certainly won't happen without intentionality. And, and Oscar, before we lost you, you were speaking about expanding the talent pool in, in general. Yeah, I know. The point was uh, we have to take a bit of a chance in a lot of ways. A lot of our boards in America have a very firmly established, strong base of individuals with lots of experience. On the perimeter, with bringing in new people, we can take a chance. Someone took a chance on me when I was a young CFO a long, long time ago to have me join my first board. Uh, and and I, it was helpful. It was helpful with my perspective about my business and my relative demographic, but also in the fact that over the course of time, I've become a lot more experienced in that regard. And uh, you know, I know from, uh, from our board's perspective, uh, what we're looking for today is somebody you know, potentially sort of in that periphery of up and coming, if you will. I'd like to ask you a question on United, if I could, because there is news. There is the deal, apparently, with the Pilots Union, which Phil LeBeau was talking about earlier. I know you know Phil quite well. United also cutting its revenue forecast a little bit deeper, down 85 percent in, in Q3. Do, do you think we're past, Oscar, the, the worst point of, of the liquidity issues for the airlines, or could it get worse? I think from a liquidity perspective, most of the airline industry has shored up its balance sheet to a level where... I think we're in a good place and we can withstand a certain amount of time that uh, 
the business continues. Uh, uh, we, we are seeing slight little sort of green shoots of, of business, mostly leisure markets. But I think the liquidity aspect of that is, is a bit past us for now. Now, the duration of this is going to be meaningful. Uh, we at United still contend that until a vaccine is uh, not only uh, found but uh, operationally put into place, I think we'll have a suppressed level of demand. So we're preparing for that. But in the interim, we're also making great announcements. Uh, we, we made a lot of international announcements today that we're very excited about. Uh, we're in the middle of our strategy session with our board right now, talking not only about racial equality and the things that we can do in that space, but also how to better serve our customers. You got rid of those annoying change fees, too. I, I know you didn't mention that, but uh, Flyers are really happy about that. That was a long time in coming. A lot of us have wanted to do that for some time, so we are happy to do that. Yeah, I appreciate your time. It's nice to see you. Oscar, you be well. All right, take care. All right, that's Oscar Munoz joining us today. Robert Rabin, meantime, is a top-ranked Washington lobbyist. He also runs the Diverse Asset Managers Initiative. It's designed to increase the number of funds run by people of color, hired by public labor unions and other kinds of pension funds. Uh, Robert, it's good to have you here. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me, and thank you for covering this topic. It's so important. We appreciate that. Uh, and a topic, frankly, that you think about every day. Uh, it sort of guides what you do personally and professionally. You do have an annual report uh, on diversity and a lot of criticisms, not only in the current state of things, but solutions, don't you? We do. We do. The Diverse Asset Managers Initiative is, is dedicated to uh, uh, something parallel to what Mr. Gerstner and Mr. Barton are doing, which I commend them. It's just terrific. We are focused on the lack of utilization for women and people of color in asset management, which obviously ties into what you're talking about. Board members tend to decide who the asset managers are going to be. And I'll say, you know, thank you, Mr. Gerstner. I think you're doing a terrific thing, and it's a first step. It, really, it sounds like the stars of this show are, are your children, Lincoln and Josie, and if they're ever interested in it, internship with the Raven Group, please, please give me a call. It sounds like they've, they've got the vision for our future. <laughs> we, we appreciate I'll say, yeah, I'm sorry. Well, well let, let me ask, what, what you're doing is terrific. It, you know, I'll, I'll say at the risk of being the skunk at the party, sort of where you've been, um, I appreciate that George Floyd really has caused a reawakening of these conversations. But, you know, we had Emmett Till in 1955. We've had a lot of years to accept the fact that people of color in positions of authority means strong performance. And I think, I think what you're seeing, and I'm very, very pleased to see it at increasingly elite levels, is a shift from we need to have people of color on the board, in C-suites, in asset management to avoid criticism, to one in which, hey, there's a lot of talent out there. Maybe we're missing out on performance and returns by not having enough Latinos and African-Americans and women in our decision-making. And if, and if that's what we're seeing today, I think that's just terrific. You know, you, you, lastly, you wrote an article that I saw in Fortune that said in part, and we, you know, obviously speaking to a Wall Street uh, audience, um, primarily, Robert, the investment industry claims to support diversity, but the numbers don't add up. Um, you know, I'm sure your hope is with this initiative and, and others uh, that those numbers do in fact change. Yeah, and what we're going to see, clearly I want the numbers to change. I don't think we actually have a supply problem in the United States with people of color at this point. I think we have a demand problem. Too many institutions feel that it's risky to bring in people of color. They're not persuaded that people of color are talented and will bring you the returns and the decision-making that you deserve. What I'm going to encourage Mr. Gerstner and others to do is, is not just a pledge, but I want you 
I want every corporation, pension plan, foundation, endowment, put out your numbers. Put out the uh, percentage of assets or, or the sort of the demographics of who you're working with by gender and race. I think it's very important. It will provide transparency and accountability for those who are watching. We'll be able to see progress over time. And then the most important thing is execution. The pledge is terrific. Is something going to happen if one of your invested in companies doesn't have people of color? Are you going to drop them? The day that you drop an investment because it's not diverse is, will be a signal and important day in the work that I do. Yeah. We appreciate your voice being a part of this uh, important and special program today. Robert, we'll talk to you soon. That's Robert Rabin, the Rabin Group president appreciate and the founder joining us today. Up next, Verizon Nordstrom board member Shelley Archambault joins us. We're back in two minutes. Welcome back. Our next guest was the CEO of Metricstream and currently serves on the boards of Verizon, Nordstrom, Okta and Roper. Shelley Archambault with us now. It's nice to see you. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Thanks very much for having me and for putting the light on this important topic. Given um, the fact that your voice is heard in a lot of boardrooms, what is the conversation, Shelley, like right now? Um, you know, let, let's be honest. R racism is not a topic that's comfortable for a lot of people to talk about, specifically um, in the office or beyond. Um, but what is the conversation like right now? Actually, we're having the conversation in every single boardroom. And the conversation is focused on what can we do as a company to improve our overall ability to leverage all the talent that we have to improve the diversity within our company, but also how do we impact the broader shareholders, our broader community, all of it. You have um, a really great personal story. Uh, I was touched by, by reading when you were a teenager, you set the goal of becoming a CEO something you did by the age of 40. Um, even so, you, you say that there was institutional biases you, you faced all along the way. Absolutely. It was very clear to me that the odds were not in my favor. All I had to do with, as a teenager was to look up. No one looked like me. They were actually running organizations and or companies. So I spent my entire life being intentional to try to improve the odds so I could achieve what I could achieve. And it's that same intentionality that companies need to put in place as they try to improve the diversity within their organizations and on their boards. So do, do you feel like this is the, the moment that, that people have talked about, that the other voices that have been on our program today, that this, this call to action, if you will, is going to truly result in, result, in, in meaningful change? I'll be candid. I am cautiously optimistic. I'm optimistic because the voices that you're hearing now represent the entire demographic of our country and the fact that companies are actually getting engaged actively. All of that encourages me. The cautious piece is can we keep the focus? Can we keep the focus? It's taken us 400 years to get to this point and it's not going to be fixed in six months. So we need to have the fortitude and realize it's a marathon. But I am confident that as long as we stay intentional and we hold our leaders accountable, that we can indeed make the changes that are required to ensure that all citizens get to contribute to the full capability. Because at the end of the day, that's what will enable our country to truly grow and to rise. I think many others share your point of view and perspective as well. Shelley, th thanks for being part of our special program today. We'll see you soon. That's Shelley Archambault joining us. Final thoughts from Brad Gerstner. Straight ahead. 
Our final thoughts now with Brad Gerstner of Altimeter uh, launching today the board challenge. Brad, uh, I hope you'll come back and let us know how all this is going. The companies you do hear from that do take this pledge. Hold us accountable, Scott. We'll come back. We'll report. We'll celebrate. Um, and we'll continue pushing. You know, you heard the eloquent voices today. This is not a demand problem. This is not a talent problem. It's a matter of will. Take the pledge. Go to theboardchallenge.org. Email me. Reply on Twitter. Um, but take action, not another 10-point plan. We have an opportunity to have 500 companies who've taken this pledge a year from now. Um, and it's not, it's not solving the big problem, uh, but it is taking an important step right. in the right direction. We will talk to you again soon. That's Brad Gerstner today. In the midst of what is a comeback on Wall Street for stocks after the fastest NASDAQ correction on record. That does it for us. Thanks for watching. The Exchange is now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. Hey, I'm Ruben. My band and I have a new song. I'm also a tow truck driver. When you move over and slow down, you're making sure I get to go home at the end of the day and see my bandmates. When you see flashing lights, remember, they're not just roadside workers. Thank you for moving over and slowing down.